Hello and welcome to This Week in Animal Protection. We're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. This week is a special episode of This Week in Animal Protection, one in which we focus not on the week's news and the topic of Nathan's latest Substack essay, as we normally do, but on answering your questions instead. Last week, Nathan invited his Substack and Facebook readers to ask him anything. We received dozens of questions in response. They covered a number of issues, whether or not animals feel pain when they are killed in shelters, humane versus aversive dog training, trying to eliminate rental housing discrimination for families that include animals, and much more. Today, we're going to discuss six of those questions, which have very broad implications and therefore we believe will be the most interesting and useful to our listeners. These include, are we making progress? Are no-kill and managed intake the same? In other words, do we have to limit or at least manage intakes in order to create no-kill communities? Will no-kill solutions that worked pre-pandemic work post-pandemic? What's the most effective way to go about reforming your shelter when you live in a mostly rural, small-town community? What communities can we use as examples of what can be achieved with a true commitment to fully embracing the programs and services of the no-kill equation? And finally, why are you against purebred dogs? (laughs) Hint, we are not. We love all dogs. We just are against exploiting and hurting them, as we will explain. Okay, let's jump right in. Nathan, the first question, are we making progress? Yes, definitely we're making progress. As we have discussed numerous times on this program, the no-kill movement has forced tremendous progress upon a resistant and regressive sheltering industry. And that progress includes a decline in the national death rate of 90%. It includes fewer people buying animals and more people adopting. It includes an increased number of cities and even entire states banning the retail sale of commercially bred animals in pet stores, a 30% decline in USDA-licensed breeders, and half of all Nebraska puppy mills shutting down. We also accomplished another tremendous feat, and that is shifting status in dogs from pedigree to being a rescue animal. Because of the no-kill movement, because of the embrace of the no-kill equation and our success in codifying these things into law, the U.S. is on the verge of ending the killing of all but irremediably suffering animals and moving away from breeding dogs in brutal conditions reminiscent of factory farms. Unfortunately, that progress is not linear and continued progress is not inevitable and there are some dark clouds on the horizon. In prior writings, you identified six looming threats that you see to the success of the no-kill movement that threaten to turn back the clock on the progress that we've made so far. But before we get into that, I want to kind of put this question into a context. I think there are a lot of people that maybe have been along this, what is now a 30-year journey that we've been taking on the no-kill movement, who certainly can see the tremendous progress that's been made, the way that we address the true causes of what's causing animals to be killed in shelters is night and day from from the excuses and the ideas that dominated animal sheltering in the early 1990s when we all got involved. And that is something that we can see clearly because we have that perspective of looking backward and seeing how much things have changed. And knowing that there was a time when we got in this movement where there were no no kill communities, then there was one, then there were two, then there were three, and then there was this massive explosion of no kill communities across the country. But a person coming into the movement now and seeing all the progress that has yet to be made, all the things that we still need to do, doesn't have that same perspective. And I think it's important to understand that. What you've inherited, if you're new to this movement, is so much better than what we inherited when we first became involved in it. And I want to hearken back to our five-part podcast series called Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. 
where we talk about not only the history of animal sheltering in the United States, but our own personal history in it and all the things that we have witnessed over these 30 years that help people stay motivated and positive about what we've accomplished and, and therefore where, where we can go from here. And so I think it's important before you start talking about the dangers that we're seeing that we just stay for a moment in really reveling in how much success we've actually had and trying to encourage people who are feeling defeated or feeling depressed about the state of things right now. Or that it's insurmountable when it's Yeah, it certainly not. is not. I'd just like to paint a really quick picture of what it was like when Nathan and I were in our early 20s and we got into the, into the no-kill movement. There was no no-kill communities. Almost no shelters had TNR programs. Many shelters did not allow volunteers. Foster care programs were non-existent. Offsite adoptions. There were no offsite adoptions. It was not the rare thing as it is today in most American cities to see a stray dog running the streets. I mean, every time you left the house. Every time. There was the likelihood that you would see a stray dog. Right. And spending your afternoon chasing down those dogs. Right. And then having nowhere to take that dog because they would kill them. Right. And now, at least in most American cities, seeing a stray dog is a rarity and a call to arms. And in the past, if you did see a stray dog, chances are you were the only person stopping to try to rescue that dog. I think it, philosophically, too, the problem that you faced as a young no-kill advocate in the 1990s was if you were, like we were, involved in caring for community cats and having to be in shelters or dealing with shelter directors all the time, you knew that things were terrible at these shelters. You knew that they could do so much better than, than they were doing, and you knew that the people that worked there didn't care at all. And also, in many instances, were motivated to make your life miserable because you were making their work harder by not just letting them kill all the animals. Say, for instance, if they impounded one of the feral cats you were caring for and you had to jump through arbitrary hoops to get that cat back. And you knew it was wrong but we didn't know what the alternative necessarily was. I mean, we knew the alternative as it related to this individual cat, yeah, right? Yeah, give us the cat back, let him live their lives, we'll spay and neuter him, we'll take care of him, right. leave him alone. But we didn't know that... What about all the other cats We could end the killing, and we didn't know how long it would take, and we weren't sure all the programs and services we needed to implement in order to eliminate the killing and how much they would cost, and how realistic they were. We just knew that the killing was wrong, and at least as it related to the animals that we were rescuing, it didn't have to happen. And now we live in an environment where, given all the success we've had, we know that the programs and services that eliminate killing are common sense, they are readily available, they are cost-effective, and the vast majority of the hundreds of cities and towns across America that are placing between 95% and 100% of the animals did it in six months or less, and some of them did it overnight. If people could, as you said, take stock of how far we've come and just turn around and look how far down the road we are from where we started on this journey, we can actually see the finish line. It's not a question of looking at the glass half full or half empty, it's 90% full. Right. And we just have to get over that last 10%. All right. So that brings us to the big threats to this tremendous success that we have already made are what, Nathan? Let's well, start with the first one. Well, the first one is the proposal by the Humane Society of the United States that animal shelters either partner with local breeders and move people away from adopting the animals in their shelters to buying animals, 
or suggesting that shelters actually breed animals themselves. So while they are killing animals in one part of the shelter, they are purposely breeding puppies in another. So the first threat, every time it comes out of my mouth, I, I marvel at it. Shelters being told to breed puppies by HSUS and being supported by other voices that are formerly part of the no kill movement in that proposal. Number two, shelters closing their doors to lost and homeless animals. Yeah, we talk about this a lot. This is a program called Human Animal Support Services. It is tragically spreading across the country. As we discussed, we have achieved tremendous progress and tremendous successes in the animal sheltering movement to the point that the no-kill movement was now the dominant paradigm, obviously not in all places and not equally in all those communities that have embraced it, but it is the standard of public expectation. And some shelters are now responding to that public expectation, not by implementing the programs and services that allow animals to find loving new homes or to be reclaimed by their existing homes and to achieve placement rates, as we discuss week after week of 99%, but by closing their doors and turning animals away and telling people who find animals that if they can't care for the animal themselves, to just let them go on the street so that regardless of what happens to them on the street, they can falsely boast of artificially high placement rates. And we know that that is a program of Austin Pets Alive and is also being promoted by Best Friends Animal Society. The third threat, which is related to shelters closing their doors to lost and homeless animals, is shelters also closing their doors to volunteers, rescuers, families looking for lost pets and adopters. Right. And this is also a growing problem. And that is when the pandemic hit, shelters adopted one of two approaches. There were those who stayed open as an essential service and met their obligations to the animals and to the residents of the community. And there were those that closed their doors and essentially abandoned animals to whatever fate should befall them. They did a lot less work. There were fewer cages to clean, fewer animals to take care of, fewer animals to find homes for, even though it meant animals left on the streets. And unfortunately, as the pandemic ended, a lot of shelters decided to make those closures permanent unless people had an appointment. So there are shelters today that do not allow volunteers to come in and walk the dogs or socialize the cats unless they make an appointment. They don't allow families whose animals are missing and are desperate to find them to come to the shelter without an appointment. And they don't allow adopters who might be interested in looking at the animals to come unless they have an appointment. And that causes all kinds of problems, first of all, because you have to call them, and a lot of times they don't answer the phone. They have to get back to you, and you lose opportunities for people who just want to come and play with the animals or socialize the animals, and maybe even aren't thinking about adopting, but see an animal that then they tell a friend who is looking for an animal, or decide that they were just looking, but they fall in love with an animal, and they end up adopting the animal. So essentially, by closing the doors, they limit the number of volunteers who socialize the animals, they limit the number of animals that get reclaimed by their families, and they also limit the number of animals that get adopted. Right. And it eliminates transparency about what is actually going on in shelters. And as we discussed last week in po the podcast last week, a shelter in L.A., the dogs don't even get out of their cages. Right. And we'll talk about that in a subsequent question as to whether solutions that worked pre-pandemic work post-pandemic. 
And that is what happens with this kind of policy is that dogs sit in their kennels for weeks and even months at a time without getting walked. They go kennel crazy, they're labeled behavior, and then they're killed. And so this policy is being promoted by Best Friends Animal Society that keep the public out of our taxpayer-funded animal shelters. Okay, and threat number four is neo-racist policies that excuse animal cruelty. Yeah, university professors particularly are pushing policies that suggest that animals themselves don't have any rights to be free of harm, to be loved, to be allowed in the house and treated as a member of their family. And that those things should be reflected, for instance, in adoption standards. And cruelty standards that, in their words, that those are middle-class white values and to impose those values on communities of color is racist. It's an argument that is obviously racist in, in and of itself, itself to claim and, that and should be easily, communities of color can't take care of animals. Right, which is contrary to the evidence. And it would be easy to dismiss this. However, it is finding an audience among some shelter directors and in some communities to the point that it has been suggested that animal control officers stop enforcing neglect and cruelty laws as it relates to people of color when, for example, they chain dogs 24 hours a day, seven days a week, or don't feed them every day, or don't provide them prompt and necessary veterinary care when they're sick. It's also been suggested that we not prosecute dog fighters. Or that Michael Vick, like for instance, was the, was real, the real victim. Correct. In, in because, of, because of his race as opposed to the sadistic cruelty, cruelty that he, he inflicted on these on the dogs. dogs. Right. Right. So, and, and in this case, these policies are not just a threat to the progress made in animal protection, but also in other civil rights as well by just these really outrageous associations that they make between certain groups of people and certain bad behaviors. Which is contradicted by the evidence. And yeah, certainly not true. Number five is a legislation making it easier for pounds to kill animals. And this is definitely spearheaded by the ASPCA and its legislation that they have been pushing to make it easier for shelters to kill animals and to expand the reasons why they kill animals. And the big one that they're pushing is allowing shelters to kill animals if the animals are experiencing what they call mental suffering. And as we have argued over and over again, any animal that is impounded into the loud, dirty, often hostile environment of a shelter can experience fear and stress. And oftentimes just getting them out of the shelter will eliminate that fear and stress, what the ASPCA calls mental suffering. But the ASPCA wants to give shelter staff the power to use that as an excuse to kill animals right away with no holding period of any time before those animals' families even know they're missing. It really would introduce a dangerous precedent into the laws of our country. And I think that that is a segue into the last threat that you've identified because it, it does treat the idea of killing as a good thing somehow, which is acting on the belief that animals want to die and that killing them is a gift. So in this instance of an animal who is in a shelter and they're scared or they're lost and they're apart from their family, there are things you can do to help that dog feel less stressed out, get home with their family, or find a new home, get, get them out of the shelter into foster care. Instead, the prescription by the ASPCA is to kill them. And in doing that, they have the support of people for the ethical treatment of animals. Right. This is the language of Ingrid Newkirk, the founder of PETA, who essentially said that animals want to die and that killing them is a gift. 
And this movement has long operated under the false notion that killing an animal is not an act of violence, that killing an animal is not an act of cruelty, but that in fact it's an act of love. And if there's anything that can be defined as Orwellian in this movement, it's that. Right. And while these threats sound horrifying, and they are, again, just to remind people, this is the last 10%. And this is a counterattack by the forces of the status quo that have literally their backs up against the wall because of the overwhelming success we had, not just winning the hearts and minds of the people to the point where no kill is now the expectation of the community, but also in terms of the massive decline in killing across the country and the success we've had moving away from purposely bred animals to the point that hundreds of cities in half a dozen states have actually banned the sale of those animals in pet stores. All right. Well, that brings us to our next question, which is, are no-kill and managed intake the same? I think that the potential genesis of this question, I mean, this is maybe a slightly different wording, but definitely something that we've been dealing with since the beginning, which is this notion that you couldn't have a community where there wasn't at least one shelter that was taking in animals and killing them. And therefore, the, the idea that a no-kill, open-admission animal co control shelter was an impossibility because they had to take in animals. And there would be so many, was, was the argument, that there wouldn't be enough homes and animals would have to be killed. Right. And so the choice they suggested was between being an open-door shelter and killing animals or closing the door and being a no-kill shelter, but leaving animals on the street to their fate. Right. And then in 2001, when you created the first no-kill community in upstate New York at an open admission, no-kill animal control shelter, you proved that that was wrong. Right. And have since replicated that over and over and over again to the point where there are now hundreds of cities across the country with placement rates above 95 percent. Okay. But to the more nuanced nature of this question, Tell us about the relationship between no-kill and managed intake. We know that no-kill animal control shelters certainly exist, can exist, but managing intake might be a tool that some shelters can opt to implement for various reasons. Can you explain? Yes. Okay. So the bottom line, as you said, is that a no-kill shelter can be open admission, it could be managed admission, or it could be limited admission. So an example of a limited admission shelter might be a small shelter in a community that's private and takes in animals as it has space in the shelter. And those are certainly to be celebrated. We want as many of those as possible because, for example, if there is a shelter in a community that takes in a few hundred animals a year and then closes its doors, that's a few hundred animals that don't have to go to the municipal shelter. And that is two shelters in a community working to save the lives of animals as opposed to one. Right. And just to show you how far we have come, in the early 1990s, attacking those shelters was something that was very commonplace. They were the bad guys because they were leaving the killing to someone else. Completely backward thinking, which should have been, even if you believe the killing was necessary, having another shelter in the community that was reducing the number of animals that that other shelter was killing because they were finding them homes. Why wouldn't you celebrate that? Absolutely. But they were vilified. Absolutely. And the second type of shelter, as you indicated, is an open admission shelter. 
And so a no-kill shelter can also be open admission, meaning the municipal shelter in the community or a private SPCA or humane society that has a contract to be the animal control shelter in the community. So no-kill means healthy or treatable animals are not being killed. Or put another way, the only animals that are killed in a no-kill shelter are those animals who are irremediably suffering. And thankfully, that amounts to about 1% or less of the animals that come in. Now, I want to make it clear that no-kill doesn't mean reducing killing to some consensus-based level, like 10% or 5%. What we found is that the number of animals who are truly irremediably suffering is less than 1%. But regardless of what the percentage is, the goal is to end the killing of animals who are not irremediably suffering and return the term euthanasia to its dictionary definition. And in terms of managed intake, it's really important, especially now, to describe what you mean by managed intake. So the first couple of years that you ran the Tompkins County SPCA in New York and created that no-kill community, you would take in any animal coming immediately through the door. Yeah, we were fully open intake. Right. But you did later switch to managed intake. And now it's really important to understand what that meant and how that operated in practice, because no animal was left in any sort of jeopardy because of that, and how that differs from Human Animal Support Services, which is the program being promoted by Austin Pets Alive. How did you do managed intake, and why did you do it? Okay, so first of all, as you said, the first couple of years, we were completely open intake, and people who wanted to surrender the animal just came in. And if somebody called and said, what time are you open? What's your policy for surrendering an animal? We gave them our hours, told them to bring the animal in, and we took the animal. We switched to managed intake after a couple of years in order to better serve the animals. And what I mean by that, for example, if somebody called and said, I want to surrender my animals, what do I have to do? Rather than tell them, just bring them in, we asked, why do you want to surrender your animals? and then try to resolve the problem. Which proved very, very successful. Because a lot of times people were having a problem with their cat, their cat not using the litter box or their dog barking all the time. And you would provide solutions and it would, oftentimes they would no longer want to give up their animal. That is correct. And in other shelters that I worked with, when we've implemented that program, for example, in one particular shelter, of the people who said that they were willing to get help, over half ended up keeping the animal rather than surrendering the animal to the shelter. In other cases, for example, if someone said, I need to surrender some kittens, my cat just gave birth, right? In the past, we would have said, bring us the kittens. Also bring us the mother cat. We had a program called Spay Your Mama. You bring us the mother cat and kittens. We spay the mother cat for free. We return the mother cat. We put the kittens in a foster home and then put them up for adoption, right? If the kittens were one or two weeks old and they were with the mother, we wanted them to stay with the mother so we didn't have to bottle feed them. Plus it was better for them. And it was better for them. We asked them if they can hold on to the kittens till they're eight weeks old. And if they said yes, then we gave them an appointment at the point where the kittens can go straight in for vaccination surgery and onto the adoption floor. They said, no, you would take the cat right away. We would always take the animal right away. The answer was never to slam the door in someone's face. If they said, I have to get rid of this animal right now, then we took the animal right now. 
But you would have never said to somebody who, say, found a dog roaming wild or just leave them where they are and hope that they get home, which is what hosp prescribes. So, so managed intake, in essence, just basically, it's so common sense. It's like saying to the community or the people that are calling in, help us help you and help us help the animal. If you could work with us, that would be great. Right. And a lot of people are willing to accommodate that. Absolutely. Even when we were fully open intake, we were no kill. But with managed intake, it resolved problems. It kept animals with their caretakers by helping them overcome challenges. It allowed animals to get adopted from their home so that they never had to come into the shelter in the first place. It was a win for the people, even if they ultimately surrendered the animal, and it was a win for the animals. And so we felt that that was the better approach, but it is not a prerequisite to achieving. So in terms of the question, are no-kill and managed intake the same? I think the way to respond to that most succinctly would be to say managed intake is a tool that can be used by a no-kill shelter to make the achievement of no-kill easier. However, it isn't a necessity. It's not a prerequisite. It's not a prerequisite. So the bottom line is that there are three kinds of shelters in the United States. The first that are fully open door or open door, but manage their intake in the way we just described, who embrace the no-kill equation. The programs and services that reduce birth rates, that keep animals with their responsible caretakers, and that increase adoptions and reclaims. Programs like foster care and adoption and behavior rehabilitation and medical care and working with rescue groups, TNR, volunteers, marketing and promotion and the like. And by doing that, achieving placement rates of 99%. Thankfully, there are more of those. Then there are those that routinely kill animals because they find killing easier than doing the hard work necessary to stop it. Those are shelters that have been with us from the very beginning. Those are the shelters we had to fight in the 1990s in order to make no kill the success it is today. Thankfully, there are fewer of those. And then there is the third kind of shelter And those are the ones that embrace human animal support services. Those are the shelters that get paid to do a job they now refuse to do. They simply close their door to animals in need and tell people who find animals that if they don't want to ignore them, then they have to care for the animals themselves. And those are on the rise, but we're already seeing a public backlash against them. Right. I mean, last week there was actually a public protest in front of a shelter that has adopted this Austin Pets Alive program. In Rochester, New York. And as we also talked about on a prior podcast, advocates in the city of El Paso succeeded in getting the city council to repeal that policy after the shelter turned away a dog and the dog ended up dead. Okay, and then a few resources that are on the No-Kill Advocacy Center website that would be helpful in this regard. These are in the toolkit. Defining No-Kill, What Shelters Owe Traumatized Animals, and the No-Kill Advocacy Center Matrix, a checklist shelters can use for every single animal that comes into the shelter, how the different options that exist for treating that animal humanely, but also the medical and behavior conditions that a shelter faces with different animals and how they should respond to those. Okay, then the third question we're going to talk about is, will no-kill solutions that worked pre-pandemic work post-pandemic? And we received several questions on this score, and they were all phrased a little bit differently and pointed to different reasons why they believed that solutions that worked pre-pandemic wouldn't work post-pandemic, but they basically all coalesced around that central question. One person that was asking this question claimed that solutions that used to work pre-pandemic won't 
work now because the populations of dogs have changed. Another said it was because of crowding as a result of people surrendering their pandemic puppies, and still another person blamed other things. But the facts do not support any of these assertions. Let's talk about that, Nathan. Right. Well, let's go back to our original discussion about how far we've come and the mythologies that we had to overcome in order to get to where we are today. Because for 30 years, we've been hearing this constant naysaying that no-kill won't work. And this is just a continuation of that. Even though over the years we have showed time and time again, and in now hundreds of communities, that that notion is wrong. And the one fact that above all others that would debunk this question is the fact that there are communities today. Still today, post-pandemic. Placing 99% of the animals and these shelters are facing the same challenges that other shelters who are failing, who are killing, are claiming preclude no-kill success. Let's break it down in terms of what were the greatest challenges that shelters faced pre-pandemic, and what would you say the challenges they face right now are? Okay, so going back to when I created the first no-kill community in the United States, we had higher intake numbers, we had lower rates of sterilization, we had more indifference by local governments, we had rabid opposition to TNR for community cats, not just outside the movement, not just with health departments, but within the animal sheltering movement itself. We had opposition to shelter work by veterinarians. In fact, the field of shelter veterinarian didn't even exist yet. We had fewer prosecutors taking animal abuse seriously. We had a greater fixation from the public on pedigree as opposed to rescue and therefore a higher percentage of people buying animals rather than adopting animals. And we had an irrational fear of dogs classified as pit bulls and smaller budgets. And I don't just mean relatively smaller budgets or a little bit smaller. If you look at, for example, Austin, Texas, Austin spends $12 per person on their animal shelter. When I created the first no-kill community, we were spending 90 cents per person of the taxpayer's money of what many communities are spending today. And we did it. So the challenges that we faced were formidable, but we succeeded anyway. And And succeeded time and time again. And also very much like today, we also were always at capacity or capacity plus The difference was it wasn't newsworthy to the media. And so you didn't see the kinds of stories that you do now that a shelter is at capacity and is calling on the community to adopt or foster. You mean that was just sort of standard. If you were doing your job right, you weren't killing and therefore you were going to be operating at capacity. An important point on that, too, though, is one of the programs of the No Kill Equation is really good PR. So like you are in the news and you're keeping the public well informed of what's going on in your shelter. and Letting this community know when you're having a space crunch or something is what you're supposed to do if you're running a good shelter so that the public can understand that now might be the time that they should go adopt that cat or dog that they were thinking that they might get. Like that means that the shelters are doing their job, that they're keeping the public informed about what's going on. And the fact that the media is interested in running those stories and routinely. So what you're saying is just because we may be seeing more stories that shelters have a lot of animals doesn't mean that 
there's more animals than there used to be. It's just that we're hearing about that more. That is correct. And in fact, there are fewer animals. The company that owns PetPoint, which is a shelter management software that has over a third of all U.S. shelters in the country are on PetPoint. And so it's a really good database that allows you to see trends in animal sheltering. And the company released data for the first half of 2022. And what they found were intakes are down. They're still well below pre-pandemic levels, but so are outcomes. And since intake is still low, said the CEO, shelters should be focusing their energies on increasing adoptions and partnering with rescue groups. It's interesting that a CEO of a software company would be prescribing the no-kill equation. Right. Well, he's looking at the numbers, right? right. And he's, the numbers yeah. are telling a story. And in fact, he expressed concern that we are losing the next generation of pet parents to other sources rather than adoption because shelters are not fully engaging the public. In other words, shelters have not fully opened to the public and they're doing so by choice. And this goes back to one of the threats that you noted that Best Friends is telling shelters to keep their doors closed. And if you keep your doors closed, people can't come in and adopt. Right. And it and it's not that they're not interested in adopting. It's that you're making it very, very difficult for them. Absolutely. And not only are they still not open, some communities have announced they never will, that they are going to stay close to the public indefinitely and make it very difficult for people to adopt by having to call and get an appointment, by getting a call back, by setting an appointment at a certain time. And in fact, I was talking to someone today who was relaying their experience in terms of trying to adopt an animal from Sacramento here in California and how difficult the process was. And even when he finally got an appointment and was able to go into the shelter, he had to wait in line for two hours to look at a specific dog. And so they're making it really hard to adopt. At the same time that they're claiming that things are awful post-pandemic and they can't move animals out of their system. Fast enough, right? And so not only are they not open to the public without an appointment, they aren't always open during non-working hours, meaning evenings and weekends when people are home, not working, when families are together and can't adopt. And they are no longer doing off-site adoptions, so taking the animals out of the shelter, which might be located in an out-of-the-way remote location, and taking the animals to where people live, work, and play. So given that intakes are still below pre-pandemic levels, it is not true that people are surrendering their pandemic dogs and cats in droves. Okay. And that's an important point because that story got so much attention that people were adopting in droves because they were home. And, and the corollary to that was the story that came out that they were surrendering them in droves. But the statistics actually do not support that. Right. And the space crisis that shelters are experiencing is a direct result of the changes made during the pandemic that they wanted to keep permanent. Right. Which is keep the doors closed. So it is definitely a problem of their own creation. And it is a, definitely a problem that can be resolved immediately by opening the doors. Okay. And another claim that they're making is that the pandemic somehow changed dogs. And this is a comment that I got from a number of shelter workers that were doing what they have always done. And that is rather than look at what policies that they are embracing or what programs that they should have that they don't, which is causing 
animals to be threatened and in many cases actually being killed, they are pointing the finger of blame outward. So in the first part, they blamed people saying that they are surrendering the animals in droves, which the data doesn't bear out, or they're not adopting animals. And the reason for that is that shelters are making it too hard for them to do so. So they're getting animals, just not adopting. They're getting them from other places. And here they want to blame the dogs themselves. Talk about blaming the victim. And let me give you an example of why this is not true. So rescue partners in Austin, Texas, are reporting that whereas pre-pandemic, the shelter killed one dog for behavior reasons and a handful overall that were deemed aggressive. This year, the rescue partners report that at least 10 times a week, they are getting an email notification of a dog being labeled behavior and put on a killing list so that if these rescue groups don't pull these dogs, the shelter intends to kill the dog. Now, does that mean there are more behavior dogs? Well, it doesn't because when the rescue groups actually pull these dogs, they turn out to be really easy. They're healthy and they have a good temperament. They are well-behaved. What is happening is, again, as we reported also in Los Angeles, the animals are not getting walked regularly. They're spending too much time, in some cases weeks, in some cases months, without getting out of their kennel. And so they are suffering immense stress. They are being labeled behavior, which would give the shelter the excuse it needs to kill them. But as the rescue groups report, just pulling them out of the shelter, and putting them in a home and giving them exercise, which can be done in the shelter. Enrichment can be done in the shelter, resolves the stress. So it's not that the population of dogs have changed. It's that shelters are abdicating the responsibility by closing their door to the public, which can walk the dogs, play with the cats, socialize all the animals, adopt them quicker so that they don't have as long a length of stay and certainly give the dogs every consideration that they're not giving them. And we certainly know in Austin that not just the dogs that are being pulled are actually fine, but we know that the Animal Welfare Commission in that city has also come out with a list of things that the shelter is, is how they're failing animals. And one of them is the lack of enrichment for a lot of dogs. Studies actually show that a shelter that provides enrichment for dogs, the longer the dog is in the shelter, the more quote-unquote adoptable they become because you can train them while they're there. But a shelter that doesn't provide enrichment, that locks them in their kennels, is causing dogs to experience what we used to call kennel crazy and then using that as an excuse to kill. So again, what is to blame for shelters increasing poor performance is not that the population of dogs has changed. It's a willful abandonment of former protocols that prove so successful and are capable of immediately being rectified. But say for the sake of argument that there are more behavior dogs, which there aren't, as we recently discussed in a prior podcast based on a new study, 99% of dogs who have behavior issues, including those with severe fear, can be rehabilitated with minimal intervention and then adopted out with near perfect adopter satisfaction. So any suggestion that things are different today is just an excuse for killing. Right. It 
in terms of how far uh, Austin has fallen on that regard, just several years ago, you were actually in Austin advising them on behavior protocols that they were at that time implementing. And that resulted in less than 1% of animals killed all year for aggression. Okay. And they have abandoned that they behavior have, protocol. They have abandoned those protocols. They had, have abandoned those policies. And they have made pandemic-related closures permanent. And now they're claiming no-kill is not sustainable. All right. So that is a ruse, the idea that somehow things have changed because of the pandemic and not because of the choices that people in running shelters have made as a result. Okay. And that takes us to question number four, which is, what is the most effective way to go about change when you live in a mostly rural, small-town community? So for this question, what we're assuming what they mean is that people in rural communities aren't as progressive when it comes to their views on animals as people elsewhere. And this is simply not true, because not only are there plenty of rural communities that are no-kill, but love of dog and cats is perhaps only remaining bipartisan issue in America today. That is definitely true. And so this question is actually an excellent follow-up to our last discussion, because as we saw in our last question, what's causing problems in shelters is what has always caused problems in shelters. And that is the choices made by the shelters themselves, not the choices made by the public. And so since the advent of the no-kill movement and its focus on the no-kill equation, we have seen the transformation of communities of every demographic in the United States. And as we discussed earlier, the vast majority of those communities went from high rates of killing to no-kill in six months or less. And that is true regardless of whether they were urban or rural large or small, relatively affluent, or in communities with high rates of poverty. So regardless of the demographic and including small rural communities, in those communities that went from high rates of killing to no kill, the public didn't change, the shelter did, which is similar to an experience we had when we first moved to Tompkins County, New York. And I remember when I told a friend who I worked with in San Francisco that we were moving to a mostly rural community in central New York. He said, as it relates to animals, I should set my watch back 20 years. Right. And we and so we weren't sure what we were going to expect. But what we were soon to discover was that whatever other views might have dominated in the more rural parts of Tompkins County, one thing that we never really needed to worry about was whether or not the people in those parts of the county loved their dogs and cats. And they did. And wanted the shelter to succeed. So right. we never had to convince them that no-kill was a good idea. Right. As we tell in our podcasts yesterday, today, and tomorrow, when you arrived there, it was because a campaign had been mounted to reform the shelter, which was just absolutely awful prior to its no-kill initiative. And you're right. It wasn't as if you needed to convince people why we should keep dogs and cats alive or protect their lives or make sure that they were given the best care that they possibly could. That was something that the community already wanted. We just needed to show them how to do it with the model that had been pioneered in an urban area. It worked just as well in a rural area. Right, and allow them to participate. And in fact, when we got there and I announced in the press that we were going to be a no-kill community, and from this day forward, we are not going to kill animals, that the public literally beat a path to our door. There is another thing that is important to note about rural communities, too, is that they have something that larger communities don't, and that is it is smaller. And the ability to influence and create change there 
than in a larger city where you have many, many wheels of government and you're not likely to know your city council members or see them in your local grocery store. But in a rural community, you really can network in a way that is much more difficult in a larger community. They are your neighbors. Their kids go to the same school as your kids. They go to the same movie theaters. They eat at the same restaurants. Whereas in San Francisco, I don't think I've ever run into the mayor or city council on the street. But when we lived in Tompkins County, a community of about 100,000 people, I would routinely run into members of the Tompkins County Legislature as we were going about our business in day-to-day life. So the bottom line here is that the focus has to be on shelter reform, not reform of the public. And a lot of times when people ask this question, they use the phrase that they find themselves up against what they call the good old boy network. But as we indicated, while there might be some challenges in smaller communities, as there are in larger communities, smaller communities tend to be more amenable to public pressure precisely because of their small size. And we have free step-by-step guides to shelter reform political advocacy on the No-Kill Advocacy Center website. There's also a book that I link to on my Substack page discussing how a small group of activists in an Alabama community were able to transition their shelter from high-kill to a 95% placement rate. And then there's also another book, Reforming a Shelter in Another Small Rural Community. But if there is a takeaway from that, is that it's not enough to show up to one or two city council meetings, get ignored and go away, because that is the nature of our political system. And it's by design. It's designed to ensure that Policies are only implemented slowly and deliberately. In some cases, you might think too slowly and too deliberately, but that's the nature of the system. And if you are in it for the long haul and you focus on the steps in our guides, you will prevail. And I can say that confidently because we have seen that success over and over again. And that brings us to question number five which is this. We clearly can no longer consider Austin to be a shining example of no-kill progress for the rest of the country that it once was. What communities can we use as examples of what can be achieved with a true commitment to the programs and services of the no-kill equation? So before we answer this question, which is a really good question, by the way, and certainly a springboard to a really important discussion, we want to just take a step back because it isn't as simple as just listing a bunch of communities that have achieved a 99% or better placement rate. And before we explain how we think that people should approach talking to people in positions of power in their community if they're mounting a campaign for reform, such as their local shelter director, their local shelter's board, or say the city council, we want to talk about the danger of highlighting any one particular community a lesson that I think has been really hard learned by you and I over the last several years and has really made us rethink about how we go about promoting no-kill. That is absolutely true. And if you go back through the history of this movement, this movement has lionized certain individuals as the rock stars of this movement because of some of the things they've said and some of the things they have claimed to have done and learned the hard way that either they were not honest and that's not who they were 
or they got corrupted by, say, money and power and being granted insider status by the large national groups that they turn around and betray the right. movement and in a way that undermined your past support for them. And one of the problems with that is that now they have a voice that is no longer authentically representing the thing that catapulted them to that position to begin with. So they may be using the voice and, and the large audience that they've amassed to promote bad ideas, harmful ideas, anti-no-kill ideas, things that hurt animals. Because this movement has put them on a pedestal and deferred to them. And this is true even if they were genuine at one point, as opposed to frauds from the beginning, because they've changed. Now, the fact remains that every movement relies on people, right? And there's no getting away from that. And there are a lot of good people doing a lot of good things many just quietly going about their business of helping animals and who keep the animals first and foremost in their focus. And I am sure that corruption is a part of every movement, but it just feels like the animal protection movement has had more than its fair share. Right. I think that there's something about animals in particular that really does touch people's heartstrings in a way where people that help them really do tend to be regarded as heroic and, and lionized. And we love animals and we want to celebrate those who help them. And so I think we make the mistake of confusing the values that we love with the people who are promoting them. Right. And so when we hold people like Ingrid Newkirk, Wayne Pacelli, Ed Sayers, Kristen Hassan, just to name a few, as these experts and as these heroes, and a term I hope never to hear again, rock stars. And then they turn around and betray the cause, they can actually significantly set the movement back. Right. I think that if you look at the six threats that you have, so many of them have tentacles that lead back to, say, Austin Pets Alive Now, which was an organization that you and I once constantly promoted because at one time we thought that they were on the right side of history. Right. We thought they were one thing, and they may have been at one time, but they turned out to be something else. And so, as you just said, so what is true of people is also true of organizations. Austin Pets Alive, Maddie's Fund, Best Friends, PETA, the ASPCA, and the Humane Society of the United States. And so, finally, what is true of people and what is true of organizations is also true of cities and animal shelters like Austin, Texas. So, Austin used to be an inspiration for the movement. And now it's a cautionary tale. And unfortunately, they're not the only one. San Francisco was once the safest city for homeless dogs and cats in the United States. And now it tells people to leave boxes of friendly, healthy kittens on the sidewalk. All at one point were shining lights in this movement and no more. But as they've fallen, dozens of communities have sprung up to take their place. And so if there is a lesson to be learned here... It is exactly that. It's we have to stop lionizing. We have to stop creating cults of personality, regardless of whether it's people, groups, or cities. It's a movement of values and ideas, and it is not a movement, and it should not be a movement of personalities and people. Right. At one point when the movement was new, and for example, in order to get the Austin City Council to embrace a no kill initiative, they asked, who else has done this successfully? And there was only Tompkins County, New York, Reno, Nevada, and Charlottesville, Virginia, right? So we had to point to those 
individual communities. But now we live in an era of hundreds of communities having placement rates above 95% and even greater than 99%. So when a city council person asks, where is this being implemented successfully? You don't have to name any individual communities. You can say there are a dozen in Virginia. There are two dozen in Michigan. There are a half dozen in North Carolina to the tune of hundreds and hundreds of cities across the country. You could also cite the declining national death rate as proof that it is being implemented nationwide and that your community is being left behind on this. Exactly. So focus on the aggregate number of communities placing 98, 99% of the animals and more, and focus on the 90% decline in killing when people embrace the programs and services of the no-kill equation and shifted discussion from individuals and cults of personalities to values and institutionalizing no-kill. Oh, and to that end, there are several laws that we have. The Nuclear Center has created model legislation that, and I mean, this certainly goes back to your point that a community can be succeeding one day and then abandoning it the next. One of the important things to do if, if you are even in a community that is achieving tremendous success, it is no guarantee that that is going to continue once you depart. Institutionalize it by passing the Com Companion Animal Protection Act, Rescue Rights Access legislation. All these things are really important ways that we start to institutionalize no-kill and move it past this destructive phase of personality that is so toxic to our cause and the sincerity of our cause. All right. And so that brings us to our final question. Why are you against purebred dogs? We love all dogs. Right. Being opposed to the system whereby purebred dogs are created. And harmed. And harmed is a very, very different thing in, than hating purebred dogs. And which in fact, we do not. which we do not. And our support for efforts to curtail their breeding is because we love dogs, not because we don't love them. Right. I, I suspect this question and variants of it come for two reasons. One, our often expressed view that as long as animals are dying, regardless of why they are dying, adoption and rescue are ethical imperatives. And also to our regular discussions on this podcast, celebrating communities that ban the retail sale of purposely bred dogs and cats in pet stores. And those stem not from being against any kind of dogs, but just being against exploiting and hurting them. What are, what are typical harms that purebred dogs suffer in breeding facilities? Pet stores generally get their animals from what are called commercial breeding enterprises, which are commonly known as puppy mills or kit mills or rabbit mills that engage in systematic neglect and abuse of animals and which leave severe emotional and physical scars on the victim. In fact, one in four former breeding dogs not only have significant health problems, not only are more likely to suffer from aggression, many are psychologically and emotionally shut down, compulsively staring at nothing. Certainly the ways in which commercial dogs are bred is certainly cruel. And of course, that is, as animal lovers, why we oppose that system. But it is true that you and I do not find any of the arguments in favor of maintaining historical breed lines in any way compelling. We see dogs as companions. Right. And, and, and we and don't discriminate should... based on it. Like one dog is no better than another dog because of their supposed breed. And despite the public belief to the contrary, and it's a belief that is peddled 
by both hobby breeders and proponents of commercial breeding, but dogs are bred to look a certain way, which says nothing about their behavior. And so the, those arguments, which are used to maintain historical breed lines, and moreover, a lot of the physical traits that dogs are bred for are unhealthy for them. Genetic diversity is way better for the health of dogs, and studies prove that, in fact, purposely bred, purebred dogs not only have more health problems, but they live shorter lifespans. By contrast, mixed breed dogs have a substantially longer lifespan and more robust health during that lifespan. For example, a new study found that purebred dogs had 1.2 fewer years of life. Which for a dog is a significant amount of time. Mixed breed dogs, yeah. And I mean, all dogs die much too much quickly, too right? And so that's as much as 20% decline in the dog's life. That's over a year of waking up with the family they love, going on walks, playing with toys, cuddling on the couch, resting in the sun, and heartbreak for the people when they finally lose that dog. And so that's one more reason to be against the purposeful breeding of dogs. And of course, there are many others. On a larger, more philosophical level in terms of what it means for the project of animal rights, the notion of purebred dogs or cats, I feel is very destructive to that idea because it focuses on what an animal looks like as opposed to their inherent worth. So from the perspective that every dog is a value, the things that I value about dogs have nothing to do with the fact of how they may or may not look, whether or not their ears are a certain way or their tail is a certain way or their coloring is a certain way. It has to do with who they are inside, like their capacity for love, their capacity for happiness or sadness. Those are the things that matter about dogs. Those are the things that we should be preoccupied with. How do we make dogs as happy as possible? And so certainly from the perspective of what people should value about an animal are those things that are most likely, if we protect those things and focus on those things, will create the best world for dogs that is possible yeah. and would make breeding dogs in the environment that they're bred now a non-starter because how could you do that to this being that has these abilities? And this inherent word. In this inherent, inherent word. Right. You don't do that. And whereas breeding, by contrast, focuses the worth of a particular dog based on pedigree. And in addition to the harm you just discussed and how it limits our ability to view dogs a certain way, to give them certain legal status, and to create the best possible world for them, it has so many immediate and concrete harms, like breeding dogs for certain looks that cause them immense health problems. Or then giving them cosmetic surgeries when they are born to make them conform more to whatever is considered the ideal. Such like, as ear cropping. Yeah, or. and tail docking. And also harming dogs in the process of breeding itself, especially in the commercial setting. And that's quite aside from the dogs that were historically drowned or killed in other ways when they didn't fit the arbitrary standard somebody historically wanted to create. So the bottom line is if all dogs became mixed breed dogs. That would be fine by us. And better for them. Right. But that doesn't mean we, we we're against any, any dogs, individual dog. Right. Yeah. And we don't go nuts when 
they cross our path. No, not at all. Of course, we always stop and say hello. So we'll link to that study that you discussed, Nathan, in the accompanying Substack article with this podcast. And that's a wrap for now. But we did want to mention that if you enjoy the conversation that you've just heard, we have them every week. Our show, This Week in Animal Protection, covers both the news of the week relating to animals and then also whatever topic Nathan has released that week on his Substack page. But those conversations are available only to subscribers. So if you enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe and join us every week. 